All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of Acts. In this session, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. But that chunk is part of a larger story, a story that began in our last recording in Acts chapter 3. So, Let's set the context for this. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John were on their way to the temple, presumably to gather with other believers, and it was the hour of prayer, specifically the afternoon prayer. It was three in the afternoon. And on their way into the temple, they encountered a lame man, a well-known lame man, one who used to be set at a very visible spot in the temple at a gate nicknamed Beautiful. And this lame man then would beg for charitable gifts from people people going in to worship. Well, Peter and John encountered him on their way into the temple and his way into the temple. He's being carried by some friends. And Peter and John healed this lame man. That led to the lame man, you know, obviously being excited and praising God and jumping, which led to people gathering around. And Peter and John took the opportunity then to preach Jesus. That's where this story in Acts chapter 4 picks up. They're still speaking to the people about this. And so let's get the parts of the story and then we'll jump into our specific chunk here. So the first one is uh, the Peter and John heal a lame man. That's 3, 1 through 10. That's what sets this whole thing up. And that's important for how the story continues to unfold. So they heal this lame man, a man who actually had been lame from birth. We'll learn at the end of our story that he was more than 40 years old. So he'd been lame for his whole life, which was more than 40 years. Then that leads to Peter and John having an opportunity to explain the miracle that it wasn't by their power or their greatness or their how religious and spiritual they were that the man was healed. It was actually by the power of Jesus and the name of Jesus. And so we got that in the second half of chapter 3 in verses 11 through 26. Then we get our chunk, 4, 1 through 22, which is Peter and John and the lame man, we learn, being uh, arrested by the temple authorities and held overnight in jail and then being interrogated by them. We'll look at that here in a second. And then the final part of this is the response of Peter, John, and the church, the believers in Jerusalem, to the interrogation and the threats of the, the temple authorities. And so those are the four chunks of this one big story here in the book of Acts. And so in this recording, 4, 1 through 22, we're really at part three, Peter and John's arrest and interrogation by the temple authorities. Here's what happens. Verse 1, as they were speaking to the people, notice the chapter break is right in the middle of the story. And so Peter and John healed the man. They are preaching to the people. And while they're still teaching and preaching and explaining Jesus to the people, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple or the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. A couple things to note there. Notice who comes upon them. We have uh, three different people or groups of people mentioned. We have the priests who those are the ones who are responsible for carrying out temple ritual, right? They're the ones that are going to offer sacrifices, lead people in the prayers and all that. So the priests, we have this person named the captain of the temple guard or the captain of the temple. He's really like the second in command 
uh, over the temple and over really the activities in the temple in Jerusalem. He had responsibility for maintaining order in the temple. He was like the right-hand man of the high priest, and he oversaw the temple police force or the temple guard, those that were in charge of crowd control, maintaining order, right, making sure that things were carried out the way they were supposed to be carried out in the temple. So he he's a man of incredible authority. So he comes uh, along with some of the priests and the Sadducees. And we talked about the Sadducees in our introduction to the Gospels and who they are. But if you haven't listened to that one yet, let me just review real quickly that the Sadducees were, one way to think of them was they were like the, the aristocracy in Jerusalem. They were wealthy priests responsible for maintaining the temple and carrying out the temple. They tended to be pro-Roman, or at least willing to work with the Romans to maintain their political power and their political position. They limited their authoritative books to the first five books of the Bible, the Law of Moses. The other writings were good and useful, but doctrine was only going to be found from the first five books. And it was because of that that they were skeptical of the idea of resurrection. They didn't believe in the idea of a general resurrection like the Pharisees did. That's important because of what's disturbing them here with the uh, with Peter and John and what they're saying in the temple. So you have these three groups come upon Peter and John as they're speaking to the people. And it says they are greatly disturbed because two things. One, they were teaching the people and they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. These are two different things that go together, obviously. But the first one, teaching the people, is... Uh, these people being in charge, they want to know what authority do you have to carry out teaching here in the temple? What's, you know, what, like they're looking for, what rabbi school did you, are you associated with? Which rabbi school were you commissioned from? Like what, what's your, what's your credential? So they're looking for that. And they're also disturbed because they're proclaiming in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. Remember, the Sadducees don't buy the idea of resurrection like the Pharisees. But then it goes even beyond that. It's not just that they're saying there is a resurrection. They're preaching that a resurrection already happened right now in the middle of history, specifically in Jesus. And he's exhibit A that indeed resurrection has happened, can happen, and will happen again more fully and completely someday at the end of time. And so this is incredibly upsetting to them. It's a, it's a, uh, obviously an attack on their authority, an attack on uh, their, their control over things in the temple, their belief system and their doctrine. They've got tons of people gathered around them, so there's a risk of disorder in the temple. So these guys uh, arrest Peter and John. We learn they also seem to gather up the guy who was healed and they put them in prison overnight. Look at verse 3. It says, And they laid hands on them and put them in prison until the next day. So they keep them overnight. Why? Well, because it was already evening. Jewish law, uh, Sanhedrin law, uh, did not permit cases about people, about life, to be concluded in the nighttime. And so, this whole event began at three in the afternoon. Nighttime begins at six. And so we're approaching evening. And according to 
uh, rabbinic law, judgments about money may be commenced in the day and concluded in the night, but judgments about life must begin in the day and be concluded in the day. That's what uh, a tractate from the Mishnah on Sanhedrin procedure says. And so it's getting late in the day. They decide our best bet is just to hold them overnight. We'll pick this up in the morning. And so, verse 5 then says, On the next day, so they're kept overnight, next morning, their rulers and elders and scribe. The rulers are really the Sanhedrin, the elite ruling body. The elders are part of that. It's another title for older men of clout and dignity. And scribes, scribes were legal authorities, experts in the law and how the law applied. And so, rulers, elders, and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. Annas was uh, one of the first high priests appointed by the Roman rulers when they took over direct uh, rulership of Jerusalem. And so Annas was appointed by them, and he actually was formally and officially the high priest from A.D. 6 to A.D. 15. And so for that nine, ten year stretch, he was the ruling high priest. And yet he still has authority as kind of the patriarch of the high priestly family, even though at this point in time, Caiaphas is the one that the Romans have now appointed to carry out the, the rulership and duties of the high priesthood. And so Annas the patriarch of the high priestly family, Caiaphas, who was actually Annas' son-in-law, and he was the one appointed by the Romans. His full name was Joseph Caiaphas. They've actually found his tomb and his ossuary or bone box in Jerusalem. You can Google that and look at that. Or if you're listening to this after I get the hub going, I'll have a picture in the hub of uh, Caiaphas's bone box, and you can check that out. If you, if the hub's not up when you're listening to this, you can go to listenerscommentary.com and you can just put your name on the email list and uh, I will let you know as soon as that's up and rolling because I'll have a bunch of bonus material there. So you got Caiaphas, Annas, John, and Alexander. And we don't know exactly who John and Alexander are. It's possible that John is actually the son of Annas who... Uh, became high priest, was appointed high priest after Caiaphas in the year 36. That, that's possible. We don't know for sure. And then we know nothing about Alexander and all who have high priestly descent. In other words, what we have here in verses 5 and 6 is all the ruling class of the Jews, the, the most powerful people among the Jews, the official ruling body of the Jews. And then you have Peter and John and this layman who has been healed, brought in before them. Verse 7, when they had placed them in the center, and so they bring in Peter and John and the lame man and place them in the center of this august ruling body, this powerful ruling body. Some of the very same people, the very ruling body that just a few months earlier had tried and condemned Jesus to execution. So they're being brought before these very people in this moment and placed them in the center. The reason for that is because the Sanhedrin met in a half circle. And so they would meet in a half circle so they could all see each other while they deliberated and debated. And Peter, John, and the lame man are placed in the center of this half circle with this whole body of people gathered around them. And they began to inquire by what power or in what name have you done this? 
So this is their specific question. This is what they want to know. This is the, this is the heart of their case uh, as they interrogate Peter, John, Peter and John here. And the question is, what power or what name? What's, in other words, what, what's the authority that has allowed you to do this miracle and to be teaching in the temple? That's the issue. Uh, what are your credentials? What gives you the right to be doing this in the temple? This charge, if you've read the Gospel of Luke, should sound a little bit familiar because Jesus really encountered the same charge by some of these same people during his ministry as well. And the reason for that is because the uh, rabbinic tradition basically said that one could only pass on a teaching or a tradition if they could name the authority from whom they received it. So that's what they're asking for. Um, I was taught by rabbi so-and-so. I was commissioned by rabbi so-and-so. That's what they're looking for. What, what rabbinic uh, authority has given you the right to pass on this teaching or this tradition in the temple. And they're looking for that. And here's how Peter and John respond to that. Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, just remember, every time in the book of Acts, it says somebody is filled with the Spirit, they speak. Um, and so the Spirit empowers Peter here, and in other cases, Paul, Peter, other apostles, it encounters other people to speak on behalf of God. So Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Now, before we look at what he says, it just seems appropriate to note, just a few months earlier, when Jesus was arrested, Peter is confronted by a slave girl and some other people gathered around a fire on the night of Jesus' arrest, and he denies Jesus three times. But things have changed. Here's Peter in the formal um, ruling chamber of the, the highest court in the land with all the authorities gathered around them, and Peter in this moment is unintimidated. He's unafraid. Peter is not going to deny Jesus. He's not going to back down. He's going to speak on behalf of Jesus. This is what he says. Peter says, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man was made well. Notice how Peter begins. He offers a polite um, greeting to them, rulers and elders of the people, right? So he greets them politely as rulers and elders of the people. And then he says, if we're on trial for a good deed done to a sick man, he just wants to point it out that there's really no good reason for them to be offended or upset. All right. Like healing a lame man is a good deed. It's good for the man. It's good for society. It means they're going to have one less beggar to deal with in the temple. Right. So it's a good deed all the way around. Shouldn't be a problem. So he says, if we're on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man was made well, and then he's going to say, here's how it happened. Verse 10, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, that is Jesus the Messiah, the one from Nazareth. Very specific. This is who we're talking about. Jesus, the one from Nazareth, he's the Messiah. Let it be known that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, 
by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. And so Peter, in this moment, with right, like he's he's got a body of 70 or so ruling elite around him, and he says it's Jesus that made this possible. It's the name of Jesus, which means the authority of Jesus. Who is the one that made this possible? Who commissioned me to do this? Jesus. And Jesus is the Messiah. So if they're asking in what power or what name I've done it, I've done it in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, the one from Nazareth. And then he goes on and says, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he's going to hold them to account. You're the, this very body is the one who condemned him to death whom you crucified. And so not only is he not denying Jesus, he's not backing down. He is letting this gathered group know they are responsible for crucifying the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah, and God raised him from the dead. So God vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead, showing that he indeed was the Messiah and that this this group of rulers was wrong in putting him to death, well, it's by this name, this authority, this power, that this man stands here in good health before you today. And so that's the first indication that this lame man is right there with him. It becomes very clear again a little bit later. And so Peter points out that it's Jesus's power, Jesus himself, who has actually made this man well. And then Peter takes the opportunity then to explain who Jesus is. And he does so in terms very apropos to this audience, to this ruling body. He actually um, alludes to, summarizes a passage from Psalm 118, verse 22, a well-known text in a well-known psalm that was regularly used to speak about the Messiah and to look forward to and hope in the Messiah. This is what Peter says, verse 11. He... Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which has become the chief cornerstone. This is Psalm 118, verse 22. And Peter is essentially saying that text finds its ultimate fulfillment in this moment in history, in what happened in this city to Jesus by you. You are the builders that rejected the stone. The image is from, obviously, the, the uh, work of construction where you would have a cut stone that the builders are like, ah, this stone's just worthless. It's not going to work for what we need it for. They cast it aside. But then uh, somehow it actually was chosen for, for a new building, and it's going now to be the chief cornerstone. That is the, the stone that's going to be laid down first. It's going to set the entire shape, size, and direction of the building. That's the idea of the cornerstone. Just a side note on that word cornerstone, the NIV translates this capstone, uh, which would be a stone that was the cap in an archway. So you would have be building your arch and you'd put a stone at the top of the archway that would hold the whole arch together. And that's how they translate it. That's really not the best image either in Psalm 118 or in Isaiah chapter 8, another place where this image is used, or here. It's more cornerstone. It's the, the foundation stone that is set down first to set the direction of uh, the building, the shape and size of the whole building. And so Jesus is 
in this imagery, the chief cornerstone, the builders, the leaders, these very people rejected him as no good and worthless, cast him aside. God vindicated him, raised him from the dead, and now Jesus has become the cornerstone for the brand new building of God's very own people. And Peter then goes on to say, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among mankind by which we must be saved. And so if you're looking for deliverance, if you're looking for rescue, if you're looking for God's salvation, you're going to find it nowhere else, Peter says, except in the name of Jesus. And so Jesus' name is the one that healed this man. And it's in Jesus' name that salvation is found. In fact, it's found nowhere else. No other name under heaven. No other name given among mankind by which we must be saved. So Peter gives this, this speech. This is Luke's summary of it. This speech to the council, to the Sanhedrin, uh, about Jesus, really, that Jesus is the name that healed this man, and Jesus is the name we need to be saved. God is the one that raised Jesus from the dead, and Jesus is now the cornerstone of God's new people. Well, the council is really amazed by, by this. Look at verse 13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, Peter is the one speaking, maybe John at some point joined in, Luke is just giving us a summary, but they, they observe the confidence of Peter and John, and they understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Just a couple things. This word confidence is really important to this story and the point Luke is making in this story. The word oftentimes in the Greek-speaking world was used in a political context for the idea of frankness, freedom of speech. It's the idea of somebody who, where there are risks involved, spoke his mind or her mind anyhow. That's the idea. And so it means frankness, freedom of speech, and thus courage and boldness because you speak freely even though there's a cost to your speaking. That's what's being gotten at here. Peter speaking to this very body who ultimately has authority over the outcome of their life and Peter doesn't hold back. He speaks freely, frankly, courageously, and confidently, boldly. And so they observe that. Uh, they see this in Peter and John. And they understand that they were two, two words here that are important, uneducated and untrained men. We need to think clearly about these two words and what they mean together. It doesn't mean we're talking about people that have no knowledge of the scriptures, right? We don't... These are Jews, Peter and John are. They grew up as part of their just basic childhood education, learning the scriptures. They know the scriptures. So it doesn't mean that. They've had standard, um, you know, Jewish education to at least know the scriptures to some degree. It doesn't mean they're like complete idiots or hillbillies who all of a sudden can just, you know, wow, give an impressive message. It doesn't mean that. These two words, what do they refer to? Well, primarily they re refer to as formal rabbinic training, formal rabbinic education. Peter and John haven't been to rabbi school. They're not like card-carrying rabbis. That's the idea. Uh, so from the perspective of the leaders there in the Sanhedrin, they would be viewed as amateurs. And that's the force of this word. They are not card-carrying rabbis. They don't have a quote-unquote in our language, degree from an, an approved, accredited rabbi school, right? And thus, they are uneducated and untrained. 
And the leaders, as they observe this and note this, they see a similarity to Jesus. Jesus was an amateur. He hadn't been to an official, you know, certified rabbi school, right? He, had, he wasn't a card-carrying rabbi in that sense. And yet he was bold and spoke frankly and courageously. And Peter and John are doing the exact same thing. And that draws them. They're like, wow, that's amazing, right? And then not only that, not only do they see their their boldness, but verse 14, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to, I mean, like, what do you say to that? They had nothing to say in reply. They're speechless because right there is exhibit A. Well, there was some sort of power or authority in this name of Jesus because here's this man who we all know for 40 years, right? And he's been sitting for however many years at the gate, beautiful begging, and now there he is standing. Um, And they had nothing to say in reply. So they decided to send Peter and John and the lame man out, the lame man who's no longer lame, send them out uh, and deliberate amongst themselves and decide on their ruling and their course of action. So verse 15, but when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another saying, what are we to do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we can't deny it, right? Like, there was the man. They can't deny it. So, obviously, a miracle took place, but we don't want these guys preaching Jesus and specifically preaching the resurrection in Jesus among the people anymore. So, what are we going to do? Well, here's what they decided, verse 17. But so that it will not spread any further. we got to kind of, we've got to do some control here. This is getting out of hand. It's starting to spread all throughout Jerusalem. So we got to do some control work here so that it won't spread any further among the people. Let's warn them, threaten them not to speak any longer to any person in this name. Notice the centrality of Jesus' name to all this, his authority, his personhood, his power. That's the force of the name. And we're going to, we're going to threaten them You can't speak anymore. We're going to put a gag order on them, a cease and desist order. No more teaching, no more speaking, no more talking about Jesus anywhere in Jerusalem any longer. That's what they decide to do. Verse 18, let's see how this plays out. And when they had summoned them back in, they commanded them, ordered them, they gave them an official order not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So they they give them that order And here's how Peter and John respond, verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, make your own judgment. And so the first thing they say in response is, you need to decide, should we obey people or should we obey God? Notice what that implicitly does. Here is the ruling body of the Jews, supposedly the the most spiritual body among the Jews, the one who's going to give official rulings on behalf of God's word and in keeping with God's word. And Peter and John's response puts them in opposition to God. Notice, we have a choice to make, obey you or obey God. And that puts them in opposition to God. And their response in verse 20 is this, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. You decide if if we should obey you or God, 
We ourselves, we can't stop speaking about what we've seen and heard and noticed. This emphasizes their role as eyewitnesses. They are simply proclaiming, carrying out the commission of Jesus the Messiah to be eyewitnesses about him and his resurrection. Well, the Sanhedrin, verse 21, threatened them further, and then they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them. There's no, right, like, there's technically no formal basis at this point to punish them. They just don't like their teaching, and they don't have any formal basis to punish them. They've given them this order, so they're not going to beat them. And not only that, they let them go on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. And so it's like, there's no formal basis to punish them. The people actually like them. We could get in trouble with the people. That might not go well. So let's just hedge our bets and hopefully they'll keep this order we gave them. For the man on whom this miracle of healing had been performed was more than 40 years old. In other words, this was a significant miracle and there was no way to deny it. Now, as we wrap up this chunk in this bigger story, we'll pull the whole thing together after our next recording and the final chunk of this story. But as we wrap up this chunk, let's just step out a little bit and really see what's happened so far. Peter and John were simply on their way to the temple the prior day to to gather and pray with fellow believers when they were uh, met by this lame man whom they healed, which then led to an opportunity to preach. And so this moment of compassion and this good deed for a lame man led to an opportunity to preach, and they spoke the word. They spoke about Jesus, and they proclaimed that it was his name and faith in his name that led to this miracle happening. Uh, Here, they are now arrested, brought before the ruling body of the Jews, and once again, they speak about the name of Jesus, and they proclaim his name with boldness um, to this body. And Uh, They hold this body accountable for their behavior in putting Jesus to death, and they elevate Jesus as the risen Messiah and King, whom they have to obey. Their loyalty and allegiance to Jesus is unfazed by inconvenience, by opposition, right, by potential risk or threats, they are going to serve Jesus, whether that means healing a lame man, even though that's not what they were in the temple to do, whether that means speaking to a group of people, whether that, uh, you know, that was, again, what they planned to do, or whether speaking to this body in this story, they are loyal to Jesus. And that's why Peter can say, whether it's right for you that we obey God or obey you, you be the judge, but we can't stop speaking what we've seen and heard. And they are committed to obeying Jesus and doing what he's asked them to do, regardless of whether it's easy, hard, convenient, inconvenient, risky or not, they are going to obey Jesus, whatever the cost.